Good afternoon uh, and welcome to the Reinventing America Schools webinar, Stand Up Democrats, Advancing Gains Made by Black and Brown Students in the Next Administration. My name is Curtis Valentine. I'm the Deputy Director of the Reinventing America Schools Project. The project is housed at the Progressive Policy Institute uh, and our project promotes a model of schools that we call 21st century school systems. Our systems that provide parents more choice and give their schools more autonomy in return for more accountability for performance. The purpose of the webinar is to examine how academic gains of black and brown students can advance after the 2020 election. I am joined uh, by my panelist, Dr. Howard Fuller, who is the founder of the Freedom Coalition for Charter Schools, uh, Kerry Rodriguez, the founder and president of the National Parents Union, and right now, David Osborne, the director of the Reinventing America's Schools Project. Uh, right now, we're gonna open up with uh, David, um, who is going to uh, discuss uh, what we mean by uh, gains and how those gains came about. Uh, welcome, David. Thank you, Curtis. Uh, I'm gonna start with what we know for sure that doesn't work for low-income black and brown kids. And that is being stuck in struggling schools, having no options because their families can't afford to move to a district that has better schools like so many middle-class families do. Those black and brown students need options and better options. And they can come in many forms. I mean, they can be school districts that offer a lot of choices. They can be public charter schools, which are independent of districts, uh, but are public, accept all students, and are publicly funded, operated usually by nonprofits. Uh, an increasing number of districts have district schools that are given more autonomy, kind of like a charter, in return for more accountability for performance, and they're usually schools of choice. Uh, and then there are private schools. Some places have vouchers that low-income families can use to purchase tuition at private schools. So lots of kinds of choices. And I think what's important is the data makes it clear that black and brown students have made the most gains where they've had the most options, where they've been least trapped in struggling schools. And by gains, I don't just mean test scores. I mean, that, I think those are important. I think kids need to learn to read and do math and, and learn a lot of content knowledge. But I'm also talking about their having good experiences in school, which help them develop not just academically, but socially, develop the skills and habits of success so that they can graduate from high school, they can go on to college, or they can go on to some kind of skills training that leads to a good job. Um, and basically they can fulfill their potential as human beings and lead productive and fulfilling lives. That's what we mean, I think, by gains. So think about the cities that have made the most rapid gains for black and brown students in recent decades. I think uh, probably the fastest improving has been New Orleans. Uh, many of you know that New Orleans before Hurricane Katrina in 2005 was considered one of the worst school districts in the country. It was not only very low performing, it was corrupt, it was almost bankrupt, um, dysfunctional in almost every way. And both parties in the state legislature were so fed up that after Katrina, they took away all but 17 or 18 of the district's schools and put them in a new state district called the Recovery School District. 
Um, and both that district and the New Orleans's home district gradually over the next decade turned all of their schools into charter schools. Um, and that model produced what I think is the most rapid growth in the country. Uh, in 2005, before the reforms began, 62% of the kids in New Orleans in public school were in schools rated failing by the state. 10 years later, that was down to 7%. Uh, before Katrina, roughly half the kids dropped out. Uh, 10 years later, 76% graduated high school within five years, which was higher than the state rate. And before Katrina, about 19% of the students went on to college, uh, which means about 38% of I'm sorry, 38% of the graduates uh, went on to college. By 2016, that was up to 64%, which was six points higher than the state average. Uh, another example is Washington, D.C., where there is a public school charter board uh, that has been chartering schools for over 20 years. And by the time the charters took away about 30% of the student population from the district, a mayor finally convinced the uh, city council to give him control of the district to do away with the elected school board. And what had been like New Orleans, a really dysfunctional school district, um, improved. The mayor hired Michelle Ree, and many people remember she came in and changed everything, broke a lot of eggs. Um, very controversial, but that district has embraced a profound reform since, and both the district and the charters have improved rapidly so that on the national test, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, NAEP, there's about 21 cities that have been taking that test for a while. And of those, DC has been the fastest improving since 2005. Um, but again, when you look at black and brown kids or low income kids, what you find is that the charters far outperform the district schools. Uh, the district does well with middle-class kids, but you look at the three poorest wards out of eight in D.C., and you look at charter performance versus district performance, the charters just dominate. The third city I'll mention is Denver. Uh, we're going to have Senator Michael Bennett on uh, a little later. He was superintendent in Denver from 2005 to 2009. Um, and Denver was another very low-performing school district. Uh, he was very frustrated after his first year and began looking around and realized that some of the charter schools in town, certainly not all of them, but some of them were really hitting the ball out of the park. So he and the board reached out to them, said, you know, we'd like you to replicate as fast as you can. We'll give you school buildings, district school buildings. We'll be partners. We'll try to equalize the money as much as we can. Um, and so they embraced charters. And then in 2008, uh, Bennett helped convince the state legislature to pass an innovation schools bill, which allowed district schools to have some of the autonomy that charters had, not as much, but some. Uh, those schools, today about half the kids go to either charters or innovation schools. And that competition has pushed the rest of the schools in the district to improve. So Denver, if you look at the data, has been up there with these other cities that is one of the fastest improving in the country. I could talk about others like Chicago, like Newark, New Jersey. Um, more recently, there have been new cities taking this path in the last five years, like Indianapolis, uh, Newark, New Jersey, I'm sorry, Camden, New Jersey, San Antonio, Texas. 
Um, and I'd sum it up this way. If you want black and brown students to do well, to have the opportunity to go to college, to get good jobs, uh, get out of poverty, we need charter schools and we need district schools that have what works for charters, which is autonomy, so the people running the schools can really run the school. Uh, accountability for performance, so that the really failing schools are replaced. Diversity of learning models to match the diversity of needs among the students and choice for families so they can pick the school that best fits their needs. I don't care whether that happens in districts or in charters or both. It's what we need. It's what works. Now, sadly, the Democratic Party used to support these approaches. You know, Presidents Clinton and Obama were huge supporters of choice and charters. But the teachers unions oppose most of what I've described um, because Teachers in charters and innovation type schools can unionize, they can organize and unionize, but most of them don't. And that means as they grow, the unions shrink. And that threatens, particularly the teachers union leaders, because where do their salaries get paid? They get paid by members' dues. So shrinking membership is a real threat. Um, so they oppose most of the options I've talked about, particularly charters. And they happen to be one of the most powerful organized forces in the Democratic Party. So this year, they succeeded in making the Democratic platform and Joe Biden's positions fairly negative on charters. Now, they'll tell you that charters are no better than district schools. They'll point to studies that say that. But if you look at those studies, they're not comparing apples to apples. They don't account for differences in demographics. Um, so they're comparing district schools where half the students are white nationally, with charters where less than one-third of the students are white, and similar differences in terms of income. But if you compare students with the same demographics, uh, same income levels, uh, the studies tell you that charter schools outperform district schools, especially for black and brown students. Now, I want to be clear, there are states that do chartering poorly. Uh, we have something like 44 different charter laws, plus the plus DC's law. Um, some of them, you know, the, the basic charter idea is you get autonomy, you're held accountable for performance and closed if you're failing your students and your schools of choice. Well, some states have kind of failed on the accountability front and they allow failing schools charters to continue to operate. Um, and in those states, the, they don't perform much better than district schools. But some of those states have been improving and uh, the studies show improving results. Um, there's a center out at Stanford called Credo, the Center for Research on Education Outcomes, that did a study way back in 2009 that said charters weren't performing better than district schools. The, the unions loved it, jumped all over it. They still cite it to this day. Four years later, they redid the study with even more states and found that, in fact, charters had improved. They were performing better than district schools. And for black and brown kids in poverty, those kids gained an average of two months more learning every year that compared to kids with the same demographics and the same past test scores who had stayed in district schools. Um, Credo also did an urban study of 41 urban regions in 2015. Um, it showed that 
if you stayed at a charter school for four years or more, you gained half a year of learning every year compared to the same demographics, same test scores who stayed in a district school. And just a week ago, a new national study came out that had very similar results. It was in Education Next, done by Harvard professor Paul Peterson and a colleague. And it looked at data from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the national test, from 2005 to 2007, and showed charters improving much faster than district schools. Um, African-American students in charters improved at double the rate of African-Americans in district schools in reading and four times in math. Um, they basically, the author said it was the equivalent of gaining a half a year's worth of learning every year. And uh, roughly the same results for low-income students. So for me, the bottom line is the Democratic Party has to decide whether it wants to do what's best for teachers unions, 80% of whose members are white and 100% are middle class, or does it want to do what's best for black and brown families, many of whom live in poverty? You know, most of us Democrats have very positive feelings about the Black Lives Matter movement, but too many of our party leaders act as if black students don't matter, and we have to change that. Back to you, Curtis. Thank you, thank you, David. Um, and really appreciate you setting the table and the tone for today's conversation. Um, we do have some time, we're gonna bring in uh, Dr. Fuller and Carrie, but before we do that, we wanna go out to the audience um, and we wanna hear from you. Uh, we're gonna propose a poll um, and uh, it's a yes and no question. Uh, and the question really centers around um, an aspect of David's presentation around the idea of choice uh, and choice meaning giving parents the, uh, the choice in where they send their children beyond, in a traditional sense, a neighborhood school um, that is zoned for them. Uh, and so the question, do you support parents having greater choice in way, where they send their children? Um, the majority of parents in this country um, do not have that choice, particularly as it relates to their ability to send children to choose from schools that are not outside the boundaries that are you know, stipulated by their local school district. And so uh, for those of you uh, who are tuning in, whether you're a parent, uh, whether you're a student, whether you're an advocate, uh, whether you're a community member, do you believe that parents um, should have greater choice in where they send their children? And as, we, as they're, the audience is completing that, I, I did want to bring in Dr. Fuller uh, and, and Carrie Rodriguez uh, to sort of, to sort of I don't respond to, but to get your take on one aspect of David's presentation, which is at the, the heart of what we're talking about, which is gains uh, and how we define that. And so I want to ask you first, Carrie, and you, Dr. Fuller, <clears throat> how do you define um, gains? You know, David brought up the idea of in school districts where you have students who actually um, are getting literally more days of learning um, just because of some of the uh, innovations and freedom and autonomy a lot of these schools have, uh, which in many ways is, is taken to test, test scores, but also graduation rates. Uh, and so uh, how do you define gains? And in some way, how do you think Democrats will define gains um, in the new administration or um, any administration that comes forward, whether it be the Biden or Trump administration, how will they define gains for black and brown children? Well, I'll jump in. Um, in terms of defining gains, I mean, there are a whole host of metrics that we can look at. Obviously, 
uh, outcomes for kids, you know, in terms of math and reading, like those things are critically important. And those are the things, honestly, parents are very concerned about. Um, while we try to measure a lot of intangibles around education, fundamentally, the reason we send our kids to school is to get a solid foundation of educational knowledge so that they are able to unlock equitable opportunity and they have a bright and successful future. So in terms of gains, um, overcoming the opportunity gap, often called the achievement gap, um, you know, those performance metrics really, really important to us uh, because, you know, those are some of the basics, the fundamentals. Uh, when I hear, you know, a lot of schools starting to talk about, you know, focusing on a lot of the social emotional skills, trying to make comprehensive, it, it's kind of uh, confounding to me because if we can't cover some of the basic Carrie, I believe you're you're maybe muted there. Um, just want to make sure we can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Yep. Sorry about that. Uh, if we can't do the basics, uh, it is very difficult to also depend on schools to teach uh, our kids a lot of the intangibles. So in terms of overall outcomes we're seeking, what does growth or or what what do what what does winning actually look like for our kids? I think bottom line is is really. Uh, reducing the huge gaps that we're seeing between uh, the haves and the have-nots. Thank you. Dr. Fuller, how are you defining gains and how do you think the world defines gains? I, I don't know how the world defines it, but I, <laughs> I think some of the things that, that David talked about are clearly what people have in their heads. I'd like to take it to a slightly different path if it's okay, Chris, and that is the importance of choice as a value in itself. Because I believe that the way that America operates, if you have money in this country, you have choice. Because if schools do not work for your kids, you're either going to move, you're going to put them in private schools, or you're going to get the most expensive tutoring on the planet. And so what I believe, going back to the, 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 the question is, I don't believe that the Democratic Party is prepared not only to accept what David said, but they are going to lose the momentum that we've developed over the last few years because Joe Biden is weak, tepid, and doesn't support the self-determination of the people. Because the idea of being able to choose means that you're self-determining. And so what charter schools have provided, for example, is the ability of black and brown people to create schools and then the most important thing is provided is the ability of these black and brown families to choose better options for their children. And all of the data that David just laid out, the Biden people know about it, but they have politically sold out to the Randy Weingarns of the world because they believe that is the pathway to victory. And I want to be clear, I want them to win. I want to be real clear about this. I am not a Trojan horse for Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump is one of the most despicable human beings walking the face of the earth. And so therefore, for me, the idea of supporting Biden is something that I do reluctantly because I know that we're going to have to fight them on the other end. Because these gains, they, they don't look at those gains in the same way that David did. What they're looking at is power. Who, who controls the flow and distribution of the money? Damn whether or not kids are better off because of it. And so I want to be very clear 
that this data has been known for a long time. And shame on Joe Biden for being so weak and tepid and going against Obama and the support that Obama had for charters because Obama understood the value of these choices. And so I believe the Democratic Party is on the wrong side of history on this issue. But for me, this isn't the sole issue that's going to drive like what my vote is going to be. And Curtis, I just want to underscore what you know, Dr. Fuller is saying right here. You know, unfortunately, Joe Biden is operating under a very cynical political calculus where he feels like he has to say what he needs to say to get powerful special interest groups, our teachers unions on board. So he's got to mouth the words. Like what's very scary to me is that I, I don't think we actually know where he does stand on education because it seems like from where his political uh, education platform sits, uh, he doesn't value it at all. Um, to, it, there wasn't a lot of effort there. Um, it's, it's basically a cut and paste job from the talking points of the teachers unions with not a lot of... Carrie, I think, I think your, your, your volume went out again. Um, she'll cut out there. I can't, nope. Um, there you go. Sorry, I don't know why I'm cutting out there, but uh, the other piece of, that I thought is, is really important, what, what Dr. Fuller is saying, is, is this idea of how we define gains. Uh, we've had some incredible successes in the, in the places where you know, David has, has mentioned specifically. Um, when, when we look at, at the status quo of how we measure what a gain actually is, but to the idea of choice being a value and what we're seeing in this country right now with parents having to innovate and forcing other people to innovate, um, I, I, I think that you know, now self-determination, what we actually value in education is a whole different transformative conversation that we're having right now. Thank you so much. And I just want, just want to um, highlight the results of, of our poll. 100% um, uh, of those who responded uh, believe that parents should have greater choice in where they send their children. Uh, how to define that obviously um, uh, depends, but I, I imagine we all support it in the way that uh, Dr. Fuller mentioned, which is uh, having the same freedom that many parents with resources have. Um, and so, uh, that being said, we do have um, uh, Mayor Antonio Villaragosa, are you there, Mr. Mayor? I, I believe you're, uh, you are muted. Mr. Mayor, are you there? He was there, he's coming right back. Um, here we go. Can you hear me? I can't hear you, it was a, a little echo. Can you hear me, sir? Yes, I can hear you. There's a little issue. With <laughs> a little echo there. Let me try one more time. Um, I, I believe you're on your phone and your computer. Thank you for everybody who's listening and to bear with us. Um, Mr. Mayor, can you hear me now? 
Can you unmute your phone? Can you hear me? I can. Sound much better. I can hear you. Okay. So let me just say, first of all, uh, I want to thank uh, our unions and uh, all of the folks uh, participating in this uh, important conversation. Uh, I've been working with parents now uh, for upwards of uh, almost 30 years. Uh, as some of you know, uh, had an effort. Uh, when I became mayor, one out of three schools were failing. We had a 44% graduation rate by the time we left. Uh, it was one out of 10 schools failing at a 72% graduation rate, but uh, that's still not where we want to be. And importantly, very few, less than 13% of those who did graduate went on uh, to graduate from a four-year college. Um, so um, I want to thank you for inviting me. And I want to say a couple of things. First of all, um, I also uh, very strongly support uh, Joe Biden. And I do, uh, and notwithstanding the fact that, it, you know, I don't agree with him on uh, everything. Um, but uh, I think it was mentioned, uh, you know, it's a binary uh, election and we're dealing with Donald Trump. Um, so, uh, it's clear to me that uh, whatever he's been for is not in the best interest uh, of our kids. And um, what I'm concerned about right now, and to share with some of you, is this whole issue of the last, you know, five or six months, we've had a large percentage of parents who uh, don't have access to a computer, uh, who don't have internet. Uh, and frankly, uh, you know, just been lost in uh, the cracks. You know, the, the children of the middle class and the rich in private schools are getting uh, a web education uh, that maybe isn't exactly what they had before, but certainly much different from what poor kids are getting. And I think we all need to, to challenge the people, the policymakers on this issue. Uh, because our kids are really getting hurt right now. And uh, this notion that, you know, we can't work something out uh, for them to get back to school, uh, to me, is unacceptable. Uh, because they're the real uh, victims here of, uh, of uh, a system that, you know, has always disregarded them to a large degree, and now it's just completely... Uh, you know, abandon them. No, th thank you. Thank you for those comments. Um, really appreciate you again joining us today. Um, as you mentioned, uh, you have a rich history in education. Uh, even prior to becoming mayor, you had a distinguished career in public service, including as a field organizer of the local teachers union in Los Angeles. How did that experience being a field organizer shape how you addressed education as a mayor? Well, you know, it's interesting because I've always said, um, even when I was working for the teachers union, uh, that I believe in unions, and I think everyone ought to have one, including parents. And when I started uh, the partnership schools, 20 of the, I said when I became mayor, we had a 44% graduation rate. 
I took on the lowest performing high schools, which had a 36% graduation rate. They're now at 80%, uh, percent, uh, but again, not good enough. But importantly, uh, we started a parent college, uh, and we worked uh, to support a parent trigger, uh, to allow parents to make decisions about whether or not uh, the current administration uh, should be running their schools when those schools have been failing uh, for generations, not a generation, but generations. So, yes, I do have a, a long history of working uh, with unions. As I said, I think everyone ought to have one, including the parents, and that's why, notwithstanding the fact that I'm on the other side of the earth, I, as we speak, I wanted to be on uh, this panel uh, to participate and encourage you to continue uh, to advocate uh, for parent involvement and parent, uh, you know, really making uh, the decisions that too many bureaucrats think uh, they could and sh should be making. I think most of us would agree that parents do deserve a union and wouldn't have one without people like Carrie Rodriguez, uh, the aptly named National Parents Union. Uh, thank you for her leadership in, in, in co-creating that. Uh, Mr. Mayor, as mayor, you founded the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools, which became the country's first innovation zones. What are some of the benefits of these innovation zones for parents, teachers, and school leaders? And talk a little about what an innovation zone is uh, in the Los Angeles context. Well, it's the largest turnaround effort of any uh, uh, school system in the country. Uh, about 20,000 uh, kids, and again, you know, in Watts, downtown, on the east side of Los Angeles, the, the poorest areas, the low, historically the lowest performing schools. Um, you know, a real belief in parent involvement uh, in a, in a in a very different way than just attending, you know, uh, a school site council meeting as an example, really participating in decision making at those sites. Uh, also, teacher uh, empowerment uh, and strong principles. Principles that uh, understand uh, that they're the chief education leader. Uh, you know, uh, oftentimes, as you all know, in a big school district or a large school, they have a responsibility to implement the education code and make sure that kids are safe. But we believe that uh, our principles, the number one uh, priority has to be uh, the education of those kids. So our principles, um, uh, you know, are in classrooms, uh, some schools where they never see a principal. Uh, they're working with parents and teachers. Uh, empowering both um, and, and, you know, understanding uh, that we got to use technology, uh, blended learning, um, that we, we we need to have a lot of tools in the toolbox in terms of, of um, educating our kids, and particularly the kids, you know, of the working class that uh, oftentimes, you know, don't come uh, as prepared. Uh, as kids who are more affluent, to you know, since they were two years old, were you know, high-performing, you know, preschools and the likes. So oftentimes, then you weren't in preschool. Sometimes uh, English is their second language, and oftentimes, really don't have a stimulation that um, that uh, others have. So we, we've uh, 
organization is all about being willing to try new things, holding people accountable, um, and uh, not being afraid, uh, you know, to uh, innovate, if you will, uh, with kids who, you know, sometimes are more difficult to reach uh, than, you know, more affluent kids might be. You've done a great job of sort of outlining um, sort of where the district was um, when you became mayor. Uh, I'm curious about what the impact of those innovation zones, these reforms that you talk about, what the impact those policies had on black and brown student achievement in your city. Well, here's an example. When we first took over, the way uh, um, gifted kids, uh, you know, are tested for gifted is, uh, you know, a teacher uh, says uh, it, it should be tested. Uh, what we said was, let's test them all. And so we had a marked increase, uh, you know, uh, in the number of kids that were designated uh, as gifted, uh, and particularly in poor neighborhoods uh, where the teachers oftentimes didn't see the talent, uh, didn't realize that that child maybe didn't have the vocabulary uh, that some other uh, children might have, but had the, the wherewithal, the smarts, the, uh, the natural talent. Uh, we, uh, I mentioned we did the parent college, um, and uh, so they took the, uh, the uh, what we did with respect to testing every kid, they took that district-wide. They've taken a number of the things that we started in our schools, uh, but uh, frankly, uh, the whole district, uh, the second largest district in the country, should be an innovation zone. Uh, every, every school ought to, uh, you know, have the kind of accountability, uh, the kind of commitment uh, to innovation that, that the partnership schools do. Um, and um, but those are a couple of things that have gone system-wide. Um, I know that other school districts are looking at what we did um, and are doing. I think they just brought out a, another couple of schools uh, this last year. Uh, with COVID, uh, things are kind of stuck in place, but uh, I'm hoping that once we're out of this crisis, uh, that uh, with a, a school board that's more supportive of uh, education reform, uh, that we might uh, take some of these uh, innovations to scale. Uh, you are a proponent of mayoral control of the school system. What does, uh, for those who are listening, what does mayoral control entail and what are its benefits to students uh, and parents in a city? You know, it's, it's unfortunate that, that people came up with that, uh, you know, the name mayoral control, but I've never been about control. I've been about empowerment. Uh, people made a lot of ado about the fact that I had broken a glass ceiling. I was the first Latino in 133 years elected as mayor. And I said, uh, unfortunately, uh, as I looked around, uh, everybody serving me looked just like me. And when I, uh, you know, kind of delved into how I broke that glass ceiling, I tell people I could read and write. Um, I got an education. And, you know, I saw that, uh, as an example, my own high 
high school. I graduated in 1971, had a 25% graduation rate. In 2005, when I was elected mayor, they had a 36% graduation rate. So they hadn't improved much. They'd been failing for two generations. So what mayoral control to me was, the mayor, um, you know, when you think about a school being uh, the pillar of a community and those communities the pillar of a, you know, foundation of a city, if you will, that the mayor ought to be involved uh, in uh, helping to improve our schools, uh, in fighting for more funding for our schools, but in also in, you know, I was willing to be accountable uh, to the public for the improvement of that school. So that's what mayoral control meant to me. It didn't mean that I had a magic wand and I was going to just, you know, like a king, if you will, tell people what they ought to do. It meant that we were going to work with our parents and our teachers and, and our community and, and our education leaders to really, uh, you know, set a higher standard for schools. And, you know, uh, we had, as I said, you know, marked success without question. But, you know, 72% uh, isn't good enough. It's now at 80, but that's not good enough. We got to graduate more of our kids. We got every one of them. They got to have a, a high quality education, A through G, we called it. You know, with college ready, uh, college ready education. And uh, we got to track them as they go to college and make sure that more of them are graduating with college or with a skill set to work. And that's what mayoral control meant to me. Unfortunately, uh, there was a lot of resistance, primarily by adults, by the way, uh, and not the parents. Uh, and, and the pushback um, was unfortunate because I think it was mentioned, and I certainly 1,000% agree, that every one of us, Democrat and Republican, need to do a lot more uh, to stand up for kids in urban schools uh, because they're locked out and left out uh, and... Uh, it's a talent pool that that we're not taking advantage of. You know, when I look at you know my own trajectory, if there, I hadn't had a teacher and a mom uh, that believed in me, uh, even when I got kicked out of school and dropped out of school, that saw some talent in me, I wouldn't be here. But there, for the grace of God, go I. And there are many of these kids that these parents uh, who organized this event. Are fighting for, and there are people who are uh, who are supporting them because we recognize America uh, will not uh, achieve the American dream on a scale that we need to if we're not educating these kids, if we're not giving them a, a, a decent shot at a better life. You were very clear about your support for for uh, Vice President Biden's um, election, uh, if elected. What can the federal government, how can the federal government, excuse me, ensure mayors and school districts have what they need to ensure their districts make similar gains uh, as uh, Los Angeles? And so what advice would you give an incoming Biden administration or a Trump administration, if asked, um, what the federal government could do to ensure mayors and districts have the same, um, you know, are able to make the same gain that Los Angeles had? I think we need to insist uh, that the federal government 
spend a lot more uh, to educate uh, uh, you know kids in our public schools and particularly kids in in the urban core uh, kids who you know I think the money needs to follow the kid uh, you know not the adults uh, if you will uh, I think we need to uh, you know uh, set high standards and hold schools accountable you know it, it's not a radical notion to question how uh, and why schools continue to function when they've been failing in uh, communities for generations. Not two years, not five years, not 10 years, but 40 and 50 years. And there are a number of schools uh, that fit that criteria. And I think uh, we can't be afraid. Accountability shouldn't be a bad word. Uh, it ought to be, it can't be just, you know, horizontal just for one group of people can't do teachers as an example. It's got to be for all of us. Uh, but accountability uh, is something that I believe in and believe in strongly. And I think the federal government and the Biden administration not only ought to fund our urban schools, make sure that that money follows the kid, uh, and particularly the kids in need. I, I always tell people I needed more resources growing up in abject poverty you know, in a single home, uh, you know, single mom, uh, you know, domestic violence. Then my son, who's gone with it, had a master's degree in education as a teacher and his father, the more, most powerful man in the city. So from my vantage point, uh, we, we can't be afraid to say some kids need more resources than others. And so those are two things I would push this administration on. And I think a couple of the people that spoke before I did uh, mentioned uh, that, you know, I do believe in choice. Uh, I think, you know, they're public schools, um, you know, uh, charters. I, I don't believe just in charters. I want successful schools. Um, my partnership schools, as an example, are not charter schools. Uh, they are traditional public schools. They have unions, uh, but they also have a system of accountability that has resulted in success. And so I, I think putting accountability and responsibility and connecting that to resources shouldn't be something that Democrats, uh, you know, should be afraid of. Uh, we all ought to be accountable. Uh, and um, I certainly believe in that notion. Before I let you go, did you have any final comments you wanted to make with regard to uh, how we get Democrats to stand up for education, particularly as it relates to the academic achievement of black and brown students. I think the paradigm that in this organization, uh, this is my third time, uh, you know, answering the call, uh, I don't put pressure. You know, we're going we're gonna, to, we got to go all out to elect Joe Biden. But I have no uh, apprehension at all uh, to then stand up and say we need uh, we need the resources uh, and the commitment uh, to uh, close this gap to make sure that the American dream is a, a dream uh, for all of us. And uh, I have no problem uh, 
currently has to put them in the best school they can. And that could be a charter. Uh, that could be a traditional public school in another neighborhood. Um, but first, uh, uh, I ought to have that self-determination. Uh, I believe in it. And that's why I applaud the people uh, who have really gotten behind this notion that we need to get parents involved uh, in uh, improving and performing our schools. Mayor Antonio Villaragosa, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your insight, your experience, and your service um, to the city of Los Angeles, state of California, and to our country. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, and thank you all. I, I, I just can't say enough how proud I am and thankful I am for these parents uh, who are fighting for their kids, just like my mother did. You know, my mother didn't have uh, much, uh, but she believed in education and she fought for her kids and all of us graduated, went on, uh, get a piece of that green, and that's what these parents are doing. God bless you, and thank you all. Thank you so much. Before we move to uh, Dr. Fuller and Carrie again, uh, we want to go back to the audience, um, and uh, we're going to take another survey. And so this is around, the, you know, the idea of autonomy, and this is the autonomy, really, of uh, the freedom uh, of school leaders, particularly school leaders, um, to hire staff, choose their learning model, the scheduled curriculum. A lot of the things that uh, the mayor mentioned earlier at schools and many schools in his district uh, currently have. Do you believe that public schools and school principals, school leaders should have greater autonomy to hire staff, uh, to remove staff from the building who uh, are, are not meeting the needs and the directive that the school has set out? to choose their specific learning model, um, to choose the, the schedule, uh, meaning length of school day, even, even school year, uh, and the curriculum. Um, and so is that a yes or no question as well? And as we you know, take that survey, uh, I wanna uh, jump back to Carrie and, and, and Dr. Fuller. And Carrie, I wanna come to you. Um, you've heard what the, what the mayor said, some very, very powerful comments about the work he has done um, in, in his city, uh, but also just what he believes Democrats uh, can and should be doing moving forward. Um, what you've heard today, what will Democrats have to do differently in order to advance uh, these gains uh, nationally? David David highlighted a number of cities. Obviously, the mayor highlighted the work in Los Angeles. How, what will Democrats have to do differently in 2020 um, in order to advance these gains nationally? Sorry about that. I, I just want to start off by um, thanking Mayor Villaragosa for being such a wonderful friend to families and, and parents across the country. Um, he's been with us at the National Parents Union since the founding of our organization, literally on the ground with us uh, when we were born. And uh, he's been a true believer and a soldier um, and just doesn't mouth the words, but actually uh, puts his money where his mouth is and, and, and literally came with us to, to show his support for families across the country. He's an extraordinary leader and we're, we're very lucky to have him. Uh, but unfortunately, Democrats like Antonio Villaraigosa are hard to come by uh, because unfortunately, uh, it's all about politics and who has the money and who has the power. And I think fundamentally, one of the problems that we have is that uh, while we are great with coming up with innovative ideas, things that work for kids. Um, frankly, you know, we're, we're showing up with a book, or, a book report to a knife fight. 
Uh, we are ill-prepared, uh, we are outgunned, and we are out-organized literally in every corner of this nation. Uh, and we have not put the time, the money, or the resources behind organizing and building political power to make change possible. Because you must create the space necessary for elected officials, for politicians to make the right decisions. You can't just show up with a white paper that shows we can do incredible results. You must create the conditions possible for them to be able to advocate for these policies to come to life, uh, to be funded, and to remain on the books. Uh, the fact of the matter is the reason why education reform, charter schools, any innovation we have in the education space, any progressive initiative uh, that we have worked and fought for uh, is not instantaneously adopted because it works. We have the data, we have the facts, we don't have the, the political muscle to make it happen. So until we as a movement, as a progressive movement of education justice advocates decide that we've got to really do the tough work of building the political movement necessary um, to not only fight to get a seat at the table, but demand that our needs are met, we're going to continue to have this perpetual cycle of getting our, frankly, our clocks cleaned on a regular basis by the bullies that have created that political muscle and are able to command that level of respect. Um, so the fact of the matter is, um, we've got to really respect the art and the science of organizing, of movement building, start to take it seriously, invest in it, and I'm talking about money and resources for organizations and organizers on the ground to get this done, or nothing's ever going to change. Dr. Fuller, you know, are Democrats ready to advance these gains that David and the mayor have highlighted so far? Nope. And so uh, I wanted to talk about, in, in, in answering your question, what could they do? I want to talk about two or three areas. Number one, the important thing that the Obama administration did wasn't just like the race to the top, whether you like that or not, their support for the charter school fund. The important thing that they did was to provide air cover for local Democrats uh, in the state houses and city councils and so forth to, to fight against this notion of the one best system, to in fact talk about what David talked about in the beginning, the ability to provide options, the ability to make sure that their families had opportunities in cities like Newark, in New Orleans, and the other cities that he mentioned. So that air cover that Obama provided was critical. And I would argue that if Democrats were serious, and I don't think they are, they could in fact provide that type of air cover. The second thing that they could do would be to support things like the charter school fund which was critical to the growth of high-performing charter schools. And so uh, both, both the, the Trump administration by zeroing out and putting it into some type of block grant was operating against charter schools, even though he was out there talking about he supports it. And then there are Democrats who simply want to eliminate, like, like Elizabeth Warren, for example, an alleged progressive. And I'd like to get to at some point what progressive means. But to, but to zero out something like the charter school fund, which was critical, is, is something that Democrats could move away from and support that fund instead of zeroing it out. And the third one I know is much more problematic for them as is anything that is actually progressive in my mind. There are a lot of inner city Catholic schools who over the years have done a tremendous job educating poor and working class people of all races. 
And a lot of those, those schools are in absolute jeopardy because of COVID and because of the financial circumstances that they're facing. And so I know that Lamar Alexander and uh, Senator Scott have been trying to get some support for those schools into the next COVID discussions so that the Democrats have an opportunity even before the election to show that they understand the importance of some of those types of schools in trying to make sure that low-income and working-class black and brown families have good educational options. So I would put those three very specific things on the table in terms of what it is that that um, Democrats could do. And, and, and thank you for sort of outlining um, the difference between um, the two candidates for, for president and what it would look like, or at least where they are now. Um, president Trump, as you mentioned, has rhetorically backed charter schools, but has done nothing to help them. In fact, he's proposed elimination of the program that you mentioned that offers startup funding to charters. Uh, and his, his, his proposal is to lump it into block grants, as you mentioned. Uh, Dr. Fuller, again, you know, do you, based on what you said, do you think that the Biden administration um, would advance these gains? Uh, how about the Trump administration? Would, could, based on where you believe uh, they will be in, the, in 2020, um, will these gains be advanced? So, so here, here's why I'm cursed. I'm, I'm going to be real clear. I got one man who don't give a damn about my life or the life of the families and children, right? So, when, when we start talking about, well, where is people going to be on charter schools? You have to be alive to be in a charter school. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we have a man who represents interests in this country who literally, literally does not care whether we live or die. Or, or put even more directly, has supported forces in this country that have been killing us. And so when I start looking at the choices that I have, right, as important as charter schools are to me, as important as parent choices to me, my life and the life of my kids and my families are more important. I cannot support a person who would put children in caves, in cages. I cannot support a person who has clearly supported people who would go out and shoot us. And I'm not just talking about the police. I'm talking about people outside of the police. So, so when you look at these choices, and I want to be very clear, um, this is an election to me that can't be based only on the one thing that I think is important. But having said that, I'm not going to be silent because people want to say, well, but if you criticize Joe Biden, then you helping Donald Trump. Did nobody tell uh, Bernie Sanders to quit criticizing Biden? Did nobody tell uh, Elizabeth Warren, don't put forth your ideas because that might help Trump? Damn y'all. I'm going to continue to criticize Biden because he's weak, he's tepid, and he doesn't understand our issue, and he doesn't support the self-determination of black and brown people, that he comes begging for their votes. Yeah, I said it, and at the same time, I'm going to vote for him. And, and if people need to understand that, that that's a very difficult thing for me to say, mm -hmm. but I have to say it because of who it is that he is running against. And so... So the, the last point I want to make while I got the opportunity is one of the things I would hope you all would do as the Progressive Policy Institute is redefine what constitutes progressive in 2020. Just because you did something that was progressive in 1910, that doesn't give you the ability to hold on to that label in 2020. How is it progressive to oppose the self-determination of black and brown people in 2020? 
Explain to me how that's progressive. How is it progressive to support the interests of institutions before you support the interests of people? At one point in time, to be progressive meant to be anti-bureaucratic. It meant to stand for power for the people, not power for the bureaucracy that runs the people's lives. And what has happened is some of these old so-called progressives like Bernie Sanders, he's out there talking about I'm progressive, but what he is, is that he supports bureaucrats. He supports institutions over the people, which is anti-progressive. So I, I, you know, I know they have nothing to do with your question, Curtis, but I had to get it in. <laughs> I got to get this stuff in while I got a chance, man. Well, well, I mean, you make a great point. And David Osborne, I'm, I'm looking at you. He mentioned bureaucracy and progressives. Do you want to, you want to touch on this, David, about, you know, how we define who, uh, you know, who is progressive and, 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 and who, who are they, you know, really fighting for, David? Yeah, well, this, obviously, since we're called the Progressive Policy Institute and have had that name for 31 years now, uh, it bothers us a lot when people like Bernie Sanders and uh, Senator Warren claim that they're the leading progressives and side with the teachers unions against the interests of black and brown and low income families. Um, and that's what they do. I mean, they choose because the teachers unions have all the money, have a lot of money, a lot of troops, a lot of political power, a lot of ability to affect elections. They choose to, to basically defend the status quo in public education rather than push for changes that will help low income black and brown kids. And to me, you know, they're what we used to call uh, react, reactionary liberals, you know? They're defending their liberal, you know, they think because the teachers unions are liberal on other issues and they're liberal, they're with the teachers unions and they're not gonna break with them, but they're reactionary, they're protecting the status quo. Um, I think that's very generous. I think that's very generous, David, <laughs> to call them reactionary. To, uh, the idea that this is based in any kind of uh, ideology whatsoever. I think this, this is all uh, political posturing uh, Elizabeth Warren was pro-choice. We lost you there, Carrie, just for a second. Carrie, we can't hear you. Um, it was probably pointing out that in 2004, Elizabeth Warren and her daughter published a book called The Two-Income Trap, I think, and advocated for vouchers for all public education spending because your zip code should not determine your destiny. Um, it, it's, it, it's infuriating, uh, the tap dancing. It's, it, to me, it's utter, it's pure political posturing, saying what you need to say uh, to get the right coalition to get yourself into office. You know, it's, it's morally bankrupt because what do you actually stand for? What are your ideals? Why are you actually running? Um, it's not what she believes. And, and frankly, the idea, I mean, we've got to really focus on this whole idea of progressivism and what we, we allow these folks to get away with. I'm a Democrat. I'm, I'm a member of the Democratic State Committee here in Massachusetts. I'm on the Democratic National Committee. Uh, we're supposed to be the champions of public education. There is nothing more progressive 
than choice and education, than, than trying to overcome uh, the, in, the inequity that we provide through a status quo for our marginalized, marginalized communities. It, it's, it's unconscionable that you could call yourself progressive and sign up uh, for a status quo that is the ultimate pillar of systemic racism in our society. Um, that's outrageous in the idea that we allow them to get, get away with it, but it goes unchecked uh, because we have not built a comparable ar army that can go up head to head against this juggernaut that has a 50 year start on us. But, you know, Dr. Fuller, once again, uh, the voice of truth that, that cuts like a knife, but we've got to listen to him in this moment. I mean, he's been saying the same thing for the same amount of time. We've got to give him a bigger microphone so that folks start listening. Uh, the fact of the matter is, like, uh, you know, I was a kid who was expelled from, from a public school. Uh, I was watching my kids start to get uh, suspended from public schools 25 years later. You know, the cycle continues. Nothing changes until it changes. But we have this powerful juggernaut of a, of a special interest group that refuses to, to do anything but hold tight to the status quo. And in this day and age, the idea that an 80% white organization uh, is allowed to be the arbiters of equity and can even enter into that conversation and, and be taken seriously and call for the reform of the so-called criminal justice system while making education reform a, an epithet. It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. It's outrageous that we allow them to get away with that. When it's all, when it's all said and done, um, you know, Joe Biden's at least nomination as Democratic uh, nominee uh, we'll go back to his his, his uh, election in South Carolina, and African Americans will uh, have uh, giving be giving a lot of credit for his election. Uh, and in voting for him, you know, uh, African Americans, and Latinos voted for um, this this idea of 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 democratic uh, a, a Democrat that Joe Biden is. At the same time, when you're looking at the the Democratic platform, the Biden you know the Democratic platform, a lot of the so-called uh, progressive ideas were included in there. And so you think about the democratic platform, it proposes obviously to, in, to in many ways to increase funding for Title I schools uh, and for universal pre-K, but it's silent on the ideas of school choice except for uh, conditionally conditioning federal funding for new expanded charter schools or for, char or for charter school renewals on a district's review of whether the charter will systematically underserve the neediest students. And so, Kara, I want to get back to you, particularly on this, this democratic platform um, and whether you believe there's something missing. So what is missing from this democratic platform um, as it relates to uh, advancing gains of black and brown children? Uh, the one thing that is blatantly missing from this platform is the overarching goal uh, that we should all have, which is providing equitable access to opportunity for every child in America. When I, when I saw the first beginning drafts of the Biden platform, I was stunned to see it took us until page three to mention students, children, families. It was missing. Uh, there was a list of tactics, uh, including uh, paying teachers more money in the hopes that high quality teachers will stay or you know, just a, a lot of pandering and the, the uttering of, of the list of demands that we've heard, the same political agenda that we've heard again and again from the teachers union. Um, that was basically the first two pages of this platform. What I want to see is a real backbone. I want to see some leadership. I want to see, hear your vision, articulate your vision for what uh, the education system in America is supposed to be. 
and you know how we are going to transform this status quo that is systemically underserved our children generation after generation the fact that we have failed to evolve to innovate what is your vision for transforming our education system into one that meets the needs of children in 2020 and 2024 there's none of that it's just a a, a list of all of the of, of how we're going to meet the demands of, of the of one of the special interest groups one of the stakeholders at the table so to me what was missing is a vision is is some some real leadership uh before we go and david and dr Paul, i want to ask you a similar question you know what's 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 missing if, if you know uh, from the platform but before we do that i want to show the results of our most recent survey uh particularly as it relates to autonomy again 100 percent support for public schools and school principals to have greater autonomy and um how they hire how they remove educators um the schedule in school year and uh, curriculum. Uh, and so again, uh, whatever you call it, and David, you mentioned this earlier, I think there's certain terms that are going around. What we do see, at least with our first two questions around choice and autonomy, that there's a universal support for this. Um, David, Dr. Fuller, um, this, this democratic platform, what was missing? And David, I guess, talk about, how did we get here? How did this platform come to be? Well, I agree with everything Carrie said. Um, you know, the overarching vision is missing. Uh, it's a laundry list of items that the teachers unions want. Um, lots more money for teachers and schools. And, you know, I, we support more money for schools full of poor kids, for Title I schools. Uh, it's a good idea. But what's missing specifically is support for more choices support for charter schools, and support for districts leaving behind the centralized bureaucratic model that they inherited from a century ago and transitioning, as some of these cities I talked about have, to a model where they give schools more autonomy, hold them accountable for performance, encourage diverse learning models to meet the needs of diverse kids, and give families choices. Um, that ought to be the vision that they're pushing because that's what works in the 21st century. That's what kids need today, particularly in urban America. Uh, so I'll just stop there. I, I'm not sure how it, how it came to be. Carrie would know more being on the DNC about how the platform came to be, but uh, I would imagine that um, it was mostly written by the teacher students. Dr. Fuller, you, you were, you know, um, insightful in saying that what President Obama did previously was give cover to Democrats at the local, state level, and throughout the country. What would, what could Democrats do in 2021? Excuse me, with cover um, from the from um, from Washington. Um, what will uh, Democrats have to do to ensure uh, these gains are continued um, with? And how does that, you know, with the coverage that you're talking about, what can they do with that cover? Right. So let, let, me, let me answer that question, but let, let me also say this. We cannot operate as if COVID-19 did not happen. Right? We, we, can't, we can't just like say, okay, let's, let's keep doing what we were doing. What are the lessons that any conscious person has learned from what has happened with COVID? the impact on families, 
what what happened when you when you were forced to get out of an industrial age model when you were forced david to leave aside the prussian model that we have been <laughs> operating under ever since the quote common school was created so that if you're a, a, a forward-thinking person and, and i and i have this problem with joe biden when he started talking about record players because that told me right then and there that you know somehow a whole you know generation had passed him by but setting that aside the, 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 the question is, as parents begin to talk about things like pandemic pods, for example, what are the implications of that for how we have structured schooling in America? So what's missing is a 21st century thought process that says we can no longer have the same centralized bureaucracy that we have had. Because I believe what's going to occur is that as more and more parents, particularly those with money and means and political power, wake up one day and say, why am I sending all of this money to the district when hell, we're educating the kids at home? When I've got to find ways to, to, to put pods together, I've got, where the, where's the money going that's supposed to be educating my child when I'm doing the education of my child? At, at a certain point in time, the question is, what did we learn when in, in a city like Milwaukee, and I just got to say this, man, when the pandemic hit, the teachers union and the district signed an agreement that everybody would get paid, but nobody would educate any kids. How, how, how can that be? So, so what I'm saying is to just come out and say, well, like Elizabeth Warren did when she lied you know, when we had the confrontation, when she lied to Sarah Carpenter about where she sent her own child to school, she made a point, because I had read her platform, that she was just going to put $800 billion or whatever it was, and that that money in and itself was going to lead to structural change. That is insane. And so the Democratic Party missed the opportunity to say, yes, we're going to put more money into public education, which is not necessarily into the public education system because the traditional system is only one delivery system for public education. What the Democratic Party had the opportunity to do was to redefine what constitutes public education and begin to talk about the need to move away from the one best system as a way to deliver public education. So, so I, I'm just saying I agree with what Karen and, and, and David said in that regard, and it is a missed opportunity in, in, in terms of at least putting that into their platform, whether or not it will be a missed opportunity when it comes to if they get elected, when it comes to the actual, you know, what's going to happen from a policy standpoint. But I'll, I'll end, uh, Curtis, so just by saying the cover that I was talking about was the mere fact that Obama said, look, I believe in charter schools. I know that all of my teacher union friends don't agree with me, but I believe in this. What that allowed local people to do was to say our president believes in this and what i found so disgusting about joe biden was how he wrapped himself around obama when he was down in south carolina you know uh pandering for black votes but when it came time to, to look at one of the most crucial issues that the obama administration put us a, 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 a flag down on it was this notion of education and doing education differently and this Democratic Party 
is not doing that at all. Before we get into our next question, uh, we have our final poll uh, that we want to share with the with the audience um, and get your perspective on this idea of accountability. Um, and so the question is, um, should we create, uh, should greater uh, autonomy, uh, excuse me, uh, just sort of rephrase that, should greater autonomy in how schools are run come with greater accountability for performance? As in a previous poll, 100% uh, of, of the respond of, of you all said uh, that you believe that schools and school leaders should have all more autonomy. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, at the same time, should that come with greater accountability for performance, meaning if you do not meet the uh, sort of agreed upon benchmarks for performance and for other sort of benchmarks you, you may set, uh, that there are uh, ramifications, implications, both short-term and long-term for, uh, for that school, um, both public or I mean, traditional public or public charter. Um, should that uh, greater autonomy also come, off, come with uh, greater accountability, uh, yes or no? Uh, throughout, the, throughout this conversation, we've talked a lot about the Democratic Party, about the gains, about in, in specific examples about what, what's, what's happened and taken place throughout, throughout cities. David, I, I want to sort of get into this idea of if Joe Biden wins, you know, what exactly can Democratic leaders at the local state level be doing um, to advance these gains? And you talk a lot about innovation schools uh, and this idea of uh, autonomy and accountability. Can you talk a little bit more about those who are listening and saying, okay, uh, we're going we're gonna to work our butts off to elect Joe Biden. And for those who are listening and saying, once we, once we get him into office, once he's elected, um, and once we have obviously cover from the federal government, if, if, uh, if, if that comes, what does change look like more specifically uh, as it relates to uh, policies and, how, and what schools look like on the ground and how schools are run? Well, I want to start by saying that that Kerry's 100% right. That the first thing to do is we have to organize. We have to create an army of people who will push both national leaders and local leaders in the right direction. Uh, so I'll just preface it with that. What do we push for? I think we push for more openness to charter schools because there's a lot of resistance right now. But we also push districts to begin to treat their schools differently. You know, in an urban, in a big urban district in America, the typical principal can't choose who teaches there. They can't fire a teacher as long as they have tenure, which only takes two or three years to get. They can't control any of the money or more than about 1% of the money, their budget. They can't control the Usually they can't fundamentally change the learning model. You know, if they want to do Montessori or they want to do project-based or they want to do STEM, you know, that's up to central office, not to them. Um, they can't control the length of the school day, the length of the school year. They're administrators, they're not managers. We need to change that. You don't get excellent institutions if the people who supposedly run them have no meaningful control. We also need to empower the teachers. Teachers need a role in helping to run schools, helping to make decisions. We need to hold them accountable, as you've said, which includes um, basically 
Schools should have performance agreements. It's, it, the charter model has shown this, you know, a five-year, a charter is a five-year performance agreement and you negotiate over what outcomes that school is going to produce and if they fail miserably, you don't renew it and the school is replaced by a team that can do better. Um, and as I said before, we need a lot of different learning models for different kinds of kids and families should, should be able to choose them. Now, districts are moving in this direction and when we organize this army, we need to push them, push school board members and superintendents and other staff people to, to investigate what's happening in Indianapolis, what's happening in San Antonio, what's happening in Camden, and begin to do similar things so that urban families have choices, good choices and quality schools. Dr. Fuller, Carrie, do you wanna add? I just think that we we have to recognize the unique moment that we're in and being able to actually build that army. Um, right now, you have this situation of COVID-19. I think the way that Howard put it about like we've got to recognize the context of COVID-19 and how important it is right now. This is a real unique opportunity for us to turn an unprecedented challenge into an opportunity. There is so much parent energy in this country right now because this entire situation is playing out in our living rooms. And we are seeing how underserved our kids are, how little instruction, direct instruction our kids are getting, how little ac actual academic instruction, there's no rigor there. There's just, there's no there, there's no meat on that bone. And for the first time, uh, parents, can, we have to be an active part of that or our kids are not going to be learning anything at all. We are the facilitators. So now we have all of this knowledge and we see how uh, utterly incompetent so many of, the, of these traditional district schools are right now and parents are furious. There's no hiding it. There, there is no... Um, you know, blowing rainbows everywhere and saying, oh, nothing to see here, everything's fine. We can see for the first time. The toothpaste is out of the tube. The other piece of this is exactly what Howard was saying and what David was talking about as well, is the fact that for the first time, you know, parents have choices and options. If you had talked to me a year ago, I'd be telling you the story of how how many people in the education policy world, whether it's here in, in my city or it's across the country, parents are told all the time, you're not smart enough to choose the kind of school that's right for your kid. You don't know enough about this. We should choose for you. You're too stupid. You're too poor. You're too brown. You, you have no decision. Well, let us do this. Let the white saviors do it for you. Well, now tables have turned. Now I have all the options. Only I know what's best for my kid. Only I know what's best for my family. And we're here to tell you, we've all, that has always been the case. And that's not something that you can just put back in the box. Parents are furious, they're organizing, they're energized, and we're just trying to channel them in the right direction. We need to make sure that this moment of opportunity, we're building that army so that the innovation we know could take place is actually possible because we've created the space. Thank you, Carrie. And I believe we're joined by Senator Michael Bennett. Are you there, Senator Bennett? I'm here, hi. Can you guys hear me? We can. Good afternoon. Yeah. It's, it's nice to hear everybody's voice. I actually am sort of sorry that you figured out how to unmute me because I was enjoying the conversation that you guys were having. 
No, th thank you. And, and, be, and before I, I come to you with a, a few questions, I just want to share with our audience, we just recently did a poll, Senator, uh, that asked our audience whether uh, greater autonomy in how schools are run should come with uh, greater accountability. Um, and 91% of those who were polled said, said yes, that if schools get greater autonomy, um, that they should have greater accountability. This is a very good segue into your tenure um, as superintendent of the Denver Public Schools. Uh, Senator, you had the unique distinction of being both um, a uh, superintendent of a large school district and also uh, a U.S. Senator. Uh, and so I want to talk about your experience, uh, particularly in the, in the role of, of superintendent and uh, your tenure and some of the uh, work you, um, you, you did to really advance uh, gains for uh, black and brown students. Uh, and you know what this looks like for us uh, in 2021. And so, just to begin, can you sort of put us in into a context of what was the state of Black and Brown students in Denver when you became superintendent of public schools? Um, well, thanks. It is. It's so long ago now, but I remember. I remember the conditions well. We were underperforming the state in all areas, uh, all tested subjects. Uh, in attendance and graduation rates as well. We had massive performance gaps between black and Hispanic students on the one hand and white students uh, on the other. When I became superintendent in 2005, uh, I can remember learning that in the entire district, which is now the largest school district in the state, but then had about 72,000 kids or 73,000 kids in the entire district, only seven kids, seven Latino kids were proficient on the 10th grade math test in the district. And the other thing that was happening was families were leaving the district. And um, as a result of that, it, we were in a cycle of perpetual budget cuts. We would thin, do these cross-board cuts, thin out the academic offering uh, for families. Families would leave, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and that would leave even fewer resources for the kids that needed it most, who were kids that couldn't actually vote with their feet and leave the district. So that's sort of where we were at the at the beginning. In, in, in a previous survey on this call, uh, Senator, we, we polled our audience and 100% agree with the statement that parents should have greater choice in where they send their children. Um, as superintendent, you reached out to high-performing charter schools and asked them to create new schools and gave them district buildings. In effect, you made them partners of the district. How did that partnership impact black and brown students in Denver? Uh, well, it, it helped double the graduation rate for uh, black and brown students in my school district. Uh, we dramatically increased their uh, academic performance as well. We dramatically increased the number of kids that were taking, uh, uh, kids of color that were taking AP tests and scoring three and above. We, uh, and as I said, the graduation rates doubled. So that wasn't just the work of charter schools. That was the work of all the schools across the district. And we challenged all of them, to, you know, to, to do a much better job of educating 
uh, are kids of color. And, and we, you know, it's interesting, the poll number that you got the second before I joined, which was 91% said with, you know, uh, more autonomy should come more accountability. It's funny because the, the, the opposite was actually true. When I became superintendent, the idea uh, across education was that somehow you had to earn your autonomy and you had to earn your way out of the shackles that prevented you from delivering for students. We had a very different approach to that. We said, look, we're going to have a performance framework. It was one of the very first ones in the country that measured student growth, not just status, but, but actual growth of, of actual kids. You know, we were in the, in the middle of a, it matters what you measure too. We were in the middle of a moment in time with no child left behind when what we were asking and answering was the wrong question. How did this year's fourth graders do compared to last year's fourth graders? When what you wanted to know was how did this year's fourth graders do compared to how they did as third graders and second graders and so on compared to similarly situated kids across the state. We built that performance framework and we said everybody's going to have to live with it, whether they're charter school or not charter school. We made sure that our charters had to take the same number of English language learners that we had in the district, same with special ed kids, uh, and uh, in part because we wanted to make sure that people weren't selecting away from kids in the district and also so that we could get a clearer sense of, you know, where where schools were performing and classrooms were performing. And over time, what we saw in the district was the principals and the faculty of the schools being able to look at that performance framework and, and find a school that looked like their school and say, you know what, that place looks a lot like ours demographically, but they're clearly doing something in math that we're not doing, or they're clearly doing something in literacy with English language learners that we're not doing. Let us learn from them. We're going to go find out what they're doing. So I think, you know, in my perfect world, that that's a world where schools and faculties are are, are learning from each other, and, and they're doing it not just to teach kids, but also to perfect their craft as teachers. Before you joined us, uh, we had Mayor Antonio Yaragosa from Los Angeles talk about his experience as mayor, uh, but also the introduction of innovation zones in Los Angeles. Um, after embracing charters, you laid the groundwork for the creation of innovation schools in Denver. Um, for our audience, what are innovation schools and how are they different from traditional public schools in Denver, Colorado? Yeah, I should. I mean, I followed what the mayor did in Los Angeles uh, very closely. Uh, so it just for us the, the innovation schools were the next logical step because we had after we had done the work we did and by the way part of the work we did on charters was getting rid of low performing charters which you know is an important piece of all of this as well because parents i think deserve to know that the school district is offering quality not just you know anything that uh, comes uh, forward which is why i mean i think betsy devos actually has been so so um so corrosive on this subject because her view of the world is that somehow uh, you just let a thousand flowers bloom and that that's good that's going to work that's not going to work it doesn't work and so we had a lot of principals and educators teachers who wanted to come together uh in common purpose to create schools and we and and along lines that were different from the standard denver public schools and we wanted to help them with that 
uh, dream, and and um, they often wanted you know just a little more flexibility to adjust you know transportation expectations to change the way they spent money to uh, to have different hours those kinds of things. And we worked with Colorado's legislators to create a pathway for existing and new schools to operate under district direction rather than a district charter, but 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 within the the public. Uh, within the uh, the what would one would think of as the traditional district, of course, all our schools were, in my view, district schools, whether they were charter schools or or DPS schools. So we now, I think, you know, more than half of our schools or about half in Denver are now charter innovation schools. Uh, well, you, you you take the question right out of my mouth. I was, I was going to say it as a testament to um, to to the work. You know, about half, as you mentioned, of the public schools are either. Uh, charter or innovation. How has that impacted uh, traditional public schools uh, in Denver, meaning, meaning the growth of charters and innovation schools? Well, there are two, two main ways. One is in the growth of students in the district. So I said earlier, we were 72,000 kids when I became superintendent. We're now something like 95,000 kids. And for a, for a period of time, uh, we were the fastest growing urban school district in the country. And a lot of that was the result of families uh, keeping their kids in the schools or coming back to the schools. We, we broke, we got rid of almost all of our comprehensive middle schools and replaced those with innovation schools or, or other smaller offers and replicated high quality charter schools. And um, that obviously made a huge difference in, in, the, in the Denver context. There are many school districts where it's sort of a zero-sum game, and every kid that leaves you know, to go to a charter school is a kid you know, that the district is losing. In the case of Denver, net-net, we actually had more secondary schools and non-charter schools uh, by the time I left than we did in charter schools when I began. In other words, the growth of overall kids exceeded the, 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 the number of kids that were going into charter schools, and that, and that was very healthy. And that was not because we were having some great in-migration of, of people moving into Denver at the time. It's because people were actually choosing uh, to send their kids back to the public schools, which is a reminder that, you know, anybody who's doing this work needs to be pay attention to what parents want because it makes a big difference. And more important than all of that, um, we saw uh, that the number of, of DPS graduates increased over 64% uh, over a 10-year period, uh, and uh, the, the increase for black and Latino students was even greater than that um, uh, over that period of time. It basically doubled. Um, and I mentioned earlier that when, when I started, we lagged the state in every single metric in terms of student growth, and and uh, and, you know, at least the last time I checked, the district for years had led the state uh, in virtually every category in terms of student growth. We still have a massive achievement gap in our district, and every week I think about that and it, you know think about how we can do do better. We still have a long way to go. Before we let you go, and again, I appreciate the time. I know you're busy today. Um, we want to ask you, sort of, for those who are listening in, there are people who are just learning about the gains and success of, of this model in, in Denver. Um, the superintendents and other members of administrations and school boards around the country are probably listening in as well. Um, they want, you know, what advice do you give them? How do we, how can the federal government ensure superintendents like yourself at the time have what they need 
to ensure their districts make similar gains uh, as Denver. So what, what role does the federal government play in really ensuring that superintendents have everything they need to be successful as you were? I think it's really too, uh, you know, I, I, first of all, one of the things I used to wonder before I came to Washington, I used to think about it all the time, wh why is everybody in Washington so mean to our teachers and so mean to our kids? Uh, and I got here and I realized that there, people here are not mean. They just have absolutely no idea what's going on in the schools and classrooms in this country. I mean, on average, they, they did go to school themselves, so I suppose that helps. But for a lot of them, that was like 100 or 150 years ago. And the experience then to where we are today is not particularly relevant. And so one thing I would not want is for Washington to be, you know, acting like the local school board. I, I do think we, we can do much more to provide provide resources to kids both in school and out of school that would be a help. I'll come back to that and finish with that. And I think that we should, uh, you know, as we, as we evolve our system of accountability, we should be uh, telling people less what they have to do and how they have to do it, and more just setting uh, you know a set of expectations that are very high for what we want out of America's kids uh, uh, in the 21st century. I have come to believe that when you are running a school district in this country and you've got you know some kids that have access to preschool and others that don't, and you've got some kids that have access to high quality K-12 and other kids don't, and you've got some kids that have access to college counselors and parents that went to college and 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 uh, you know college going tradition in their families and other kids don't. I, I have come to the view that equal is not equal, and we have to fight to make sure that resources get to the kids in our country that need it most. We're still spending more money on affluent kids than we are on poor kids, and we still don't have the proper alignment of Title I money uh, to support poor kids. So that's something we could do at the federal level. And the final point I'll make is this. It'd be nice if we didn't have so many kids that were poor in this country. And, and that's why I've been fighting for something called the American Family Act that in one year would cut childhood poverty in America by 40%. It would cut uh, childhood poverty for black students and Latino students by over 50%. It's called the American Family Act. It's just a dramatic increase to the child tax credit. If we could cut the number of kids living in poverty in half, uh, I think that may be the most important school reform that we could ever make. Thank you so much, Senator. We, we definitely appreciate your service to the state of Colorado and to our country and uh, your education, your experience. Um, unlike any other U.S. Senator, um, as, as a role as a superintendent, we appreciate you and thank you so much for your time. Well, I'm grateful for your, you guys paying attention to this incredibly important but often neglected uh, 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 set of issues. It's just so important for our kids and for our families. And COVID, which we didn't really have time to talk about, has, has clearly revealed the inequities uh, even more. So thanks for having me, and let me know how I can help. Thank talk you to you soon. And those are listening, we're, we're, we're over time, but I did not want to leave without giving David, Dr. Fuller, and Carrie just a final word um, for those who are still here. And again, thank you so much for joining us over this last uh, hour and a half. Um, David, thank you for your presentation. We thank Mayor Villaraigosa for his time and really, you know, uh, really bringing us to, to, to where we are and where we can be based on his own experience. Uh, and thank you to the three of you, um, to, to you, Dr. Fuller, and to Carrie. 
your experience um, and your words of inspiration. Um, any final words? And I'll start with you, Carrie, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go with you, Dr. Fuller, and we'll finish up with you, David. I just want to reiterate um, something that's been kind of a theme of, you know, all of our remarks here and, and something that, you know, Dr. Fuller has been talking about quite a bit, just the fact that, you know, this is a heartbreaking election right now. Um, and you want to, you want to be able to go to the ballot box with hope in your heart that things are going to change and that you're going to be heard and that this is going to be a transformative election, especially around the issues that we care about. Um, you know, our union and, and the, the folks that are out there organizing every single day and in the 200 plus organizations that are affiliated with us, we're out there fighting for the fabric of our families. Uh, we're on the doorsteps, you know, we're dropping off food. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have the, the experience of watching babies like mine that look exactly like my David uh, still being locked in cages at the border. And so, uh, we go to the ballot box with no joy in our heart this year because we're voting for Joe Biden uh, because we want to live. And frankly, uh, my constituency, like there's just so, there's too much at stake to do anything else. Uh, but at the meantime, in the same time, we're having a deeply unserious conversation about education, which is the heart of systemic racism in our country. And we're not having a serious conversation about how we change it uh, while we're mouthing the words that something's got to give. So my hope is that, you know, we go to the ballot box. Uh, we do what we have to do uh, to make real change in this country because people are dying, whether it's from COVID, whether it's from racism, whether it's from poverty, our people are dying in the streets, we gotta do it. But in the next four years, we gotta get real serious about this stuff. We got to change the way we're doing things, doing the same things, failing to organize, failing to get serious about getting into the political game. We are signing up for another four years of, of failure and, and political defeat. You know, we've got to change what we're doing, what's not working. And I hope that, that folks are listening. They're listening to families across the country. You're listening to Dr. Fuller. Uh, we've been saying the same things. We're saying the right things. We, start, we need to start doing the right things now. Thank you so much, Kerry. Dr. Fuller, any final thoughts? No, I, I, I couldn't add anything to what Kerry just said. So just thanks for having uh, me on the program. And thank you for your time. David, final word. Yeah, I, I, uh, I just want to thank Kerry and Howard uh, for the work they do and for the words that they've shared with us. They're both, you're both so inspiring. Um, I'm with I'm with them. We got to elect Joe Biden, and then we got to organize that army and push him and push him and push him and push other Democrats to do what America's children need, not what the employees of school districts need. Thank you, David. And so I think that's that's the word. Um, the election is not the beginning. I mean, at the end, excuse me, it is just the beginning of fighting for what we all believe. Thank you again, uh, Kerry Rodriguez, Dr. Howard Fuller, David Osborne, Mayor Antonio Barragosa, and Senator Michael Bennett. Uh, thank you all for, for viewing in, for staying a little longer. Um, and um, last but not least, go to the polls. Please let your voice be heard. Please vote. And after you do that, keep fighting for education to ensure that every child has the same opportunities, regardless of their income or their race. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.